So the commandment we're looking at, we're at number eight, it's going to be on the screen, I think, is you shall not steal. Four very short words, you shall not steal, uh, but un- lots to unpack. Uh, so Rachel's going to come and give us a couple of readings that are going to help um, flesh that out a little bit more. Rachel. Exodus 22, starting at verse one. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found to be alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns sheaves of corn or standing corn or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. If anyone gives a neighbour silver or goods for safekeeping and they are stolen from the neighbour's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment or any other lost property about which somebody says, this is mine. Both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one whom the judges declare guilty must pay back double to the other. If anyone gives a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to their neighbor for safekeeping, and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord that the neighbor did not lay hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this and no restitution is required. But if the animal was stolen from the neighbor, restitution must be made to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, the neighbor shall bring in the remains as evidence and shall not be required to pay for the torn animal. If anyone borrows an animal from their neighbor and it is injured or dies while the owner is not present, they must make restitution. But if the owner is with the animal, the borrower will not have to pay. If the animal was hired, the money paid for the hire covers the loss. Our next reading will be from Ephesians chapter 4, from verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life. They are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, 
which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. This is God's word. Good evening, everyone. It would be great if you could turn your Bibles back to Exodus chapter 22, which um, we'll begin there in a moment. Uh, My name's James. I'm on the staff team here, and it'll be lovely to meet you afterwards if we haven't met before. Um, But let's pray together as we begin and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you because you are a God of awesome generosity to us. And so we pray tonight you would help us to be humble and listen to your word. Thank you that you continue to speak to us this evening. Please help us to listen and for our hearts to be soft and ready to change as we hear your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, It was a few years ago now that um, uh, someone broke into my parents' house Um, They live in a a village just outside of London, a very quiet rural area. And they went out one day and um, locked the house as usual and um, left. And while they're out, some people came and and broke in. So they kind of forced the door open and um, got through the the first front door. Um, But thankfully, the the burglar alarm went off. And we think what happened is the the burglar alarm very loud and they ran away. And so nothing got taken, thankfully. Um, But there was a, a couple of um, reactions to this that was quite telling. So my parents, who, who arrived back home, they um, obviously quite distressed, shocked to see that someone had broken into their house. Um, and they called the police, and the police sort of arrive, and they, they come and look around the house and see, oh, has anything been taken? And they look round and round. And the first thing my, the police said to my parents was, it's okay, there is nothing in your house that's worth stealing. That was the first thing they said. Because obviously the, the thieves were after kind of electronic goods they could move on and jewellery and my parents have none of that. So if you're thinking about it, don't try and break into my parents' house. <laughs> but the second reaction that was perhaps most telling was my, my dad's. See, ever since this has happened, he has become ultra-vigilant. Whenever he leaves the house, he has a, a full round of security measures that he goes through to make sure everything is secured and locked up and, and safe. Um, so secret, I can't tell you actually tonight because it would be compromising the security. Um, but he, he's ultra-vigilant because he doesn't want his things to be taken. When someone takes out our property or tries to, we feel it personally. We feel it personally. It's not just an attack against our things. It is something personal. It's an attack against us. And you and I know that's the case because I'm sure that each one of us spends time every day trying to protect our property. We don't even realize we're doing it often. But as you've come here this evening, I'm sure you, you locked your house. Those who cycled didn't just leave their bikes out on the street, you, you locked them up. We have passwords for our email accounts, pins for our bank accounts. We don't just leave our stuff lying around, we, we try and protect it. We want to protect it. We spend time every day trying to protect our property. We care a lot. And the good news this evening, as we come to this eighth commandment, you shall not steal, is that God cares too. 
He cares that our property is protected. He wants us to be individuals in a society where the things that we have are safe and protected. And we're going to be thinking more about that this evening as we go along and see not only how God wants to protect our property, but also to turn us out that we might open our hands and give and give generously and share. If you're joining us this week, we're in a series working our way through the Ten Commandments. We've reached number eight this evening. They're they're Ten Commandments or words that God has given to his people. And they're, they're designed to help us know how to live in freedom. We think law equals restrictive, but that's not what God intended. The laws that he's given are to give us freedom. Um, I'd never had any pets before except one pet goldfish when I was growing up. Um, we had a big tank and the goldfish in it, one for me and for each of my siblings, and we, we had this gold, uh, goldfish tank in our, our dining room. And at no point did any of us ever think, how restrictive to have water that the fish has to be in. How restrictive. Why don't we just take the tank and tip it out and we can put it on the floor and the fish can enjoy the freedom of the whole of the house like the rest of us. At no point did any of us think that. Because the water and the tank, they're the boundaries within which the fish can enjoy what it is to be a fish, to swim around and to enjoy life. And these ten principles, words that God has given, are like the boundaries within which we can as human beings enjoy and flourish That's what God wants. And more than that, these laws show us the character of our God so that as Christians who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can be like him and point others towards him. So if you have your service sheets, there's an outline on the back. If you want to take notes, we're going to work through the points that are there. Um, Firstly, God cares about protecting our property, but stealing comes naturally to us. And then thirdly, generosity comes supernaturally. So we're going to work our way through those three And we'll start in Exodus 22. God cares about protecting our property. Now, the eighth commandment on the surface is quite straightforward. I've put as the headline, God cares about protecting our property. And that means all the property of all of us. He wants us as individuals and as a society to have our property protected. And as you read through Exodus chapter 22, you'll see all the various different ways in which God wants to protect our property. It's usually done with sheep and oxen. I'm sure you can substitute in your head your iPhone and your favorite pair of shoes or whatever you you want as you go through. But just notice all the different ways in which God wants to protect our property. So verse 1, there's kind of straight up stealing. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it must sell it back, pay pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. In other words, if you take it and you get caught, you're going to have to give it back and make restitution because God wants to protect it. Or as you keep going through verse two, you get someone breaking into the house or verse six, if you look down, a fire that's breaking out and spreading out. The person who's started it, the arsonist who's caused all the damage to the property, well, they're the ones in trouble this time. Or verse seven, you've got your, your mate who you've given something to and they don't look after it properly. They just take it. Or again, verse 10, you give something to your mate and they, they look after it and actually they end up, the sheep ends up dying from verse 10 onwards. And um, it kind of, in every way, God wants to protect the stuff that we have. It doesn't matter um, who's got it or who's trying to take it. He's trying to protect it so that we can have it and it's safe. God cares about protecting our property. But, but why does it matter? Why so many laws and laws and laws, laws and laws to protect our property? Why does it matter? 
Well, as individuals, it matters because it's something that's very personal to us. We know that the reaction that we have when something that is ours gets taken. So if for me, I like books, and if, I, if someone wants to borrow a book off me, and I sort of give them a book, and they go away and read it, and comes back, and they give it back to me with a big smile on their face, and it kind of looks more like it's been put in a blender than it's been read, and you're sort of thinking, come on. You feel a bit grumpy, don't you? Or I, I once witnessed, um, uh, when I went home one evening, so a lady was standing by the side of the road holding her phone, and uh, someone rode past on a bike and just took the phone and rode away. And she's obviously shouting and in shock, and you, you kind of file a police report and that sort of thing. But ever since, I'm just a little bit more scared, scared about what might happen when I'm holding my phone. Or that sickening moment, you come back to the place you've left your bike and you realize it's gone, it's been nicked, and you're just angry. Angry, how could someone take this thing? Grumpy, scared, angry. It's personal, we care. We care a lot. And it's a loving thing that our property is protected, that God wants our property to be protected. But more than just as individuals, as I've looked through the Bible this week, I've noticed again and again how when the Eighth Commandment, this do you shall not steal, is broken across a society, it just leads to oppression. The Bible is very strong. God hates it when a society allows those who are powerful to take things off the weak. If you read through the the prophets in the Old Testament, you find again and again God saying to the kings who take rather than serve from their people, how he condemns them again and again. Or the nations who come and plunder and loot and take away things and people. God hates it again and again. Or in the New Testament, let me just read out a little bit of James chapter 5. Listen to what happens when employers are taking advantage of their employees. Listen to what God says. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. Rich employers holding back wages, defrauding them, not paying the workers what they deserve. When these employees are living hand to mouth, if they don't get paid, they don't get to eat. Their families don't get to eat. And yet they can't say anything because if they get fired, well, they have no job at all. And so no one eats again. They're not in a position to complain. And so these powerful bosses across the society are taking advantage, stealing and stealing. And God is not in heaven indifferent to this. He says, like the turkey that's busy consuming, consuming, getting fatter and fatter without realizing Christmas Day is approaching and they're going to be slaughtered. God says that these uh, employers who are stealing have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, fattened themselves in the day of slaughter. God is in heaven and he cares He really does care. He's not indifferent. Kings who take what they want, nations who plunder what they want, employers who defraud from their employees, God cares. And he cares, and it's a loving thing, because he wants to protect the things that are ours. He doesn't want us to be individuals or a society where things get taken. And because God cares, we also must be people who care. We have to be people who care about this thing so that our priorities are in line with God's whether that's as individuals when we get given something that is someone else's and we have to look after it. Just as individuals, we have to care. But even more, this touches on some of the big issues of the day. 
it's hard to read the papers or a week to, to go by without hearing something about um, government dictators who oppress their people or, or fair trading or human trafficking or materialism or overconsumption, all of these massive issues. And the Eighth Commandment has something to say to each of them because God cares about how property is treated. Now, it's hard to think through specific responses to massive issues. They're complex, and maybe we'll be able to have an engage at some point thinking about some of these. But I just want to say our starting point can't be indifference. It can't be indifference. Often we care when it's our stuff, but as we look at society, we become indifferent. And I don't want us to be indifferent because God cares. He says, you shall not steal. He doesn't want us to be indifferent to this sort of thing. Why not this week try just praying? Whenever one of those news articles appears, just pray. Pray and and bring your emotions in line with what God wants as he sees property getting taken. God cares that our property is safe. Now at this point, you, you may be tempted to think, okay, this is all just stuff then for people who are out there. People who are out there, the, the, the bad people, the thieves who take stuff. What does it have to say to us? Well, the testimony of the Bible has something very different to tell us, and that brings us to our second point, which is this. Stealing comes naturally to us. Stealing comes naturally to us. You may know the story of the Bible right back in Genesis chapter 1. Do you know God creates everything? He creates the whole world, and he, he makes this beautiful garden. He is so generous in everything that he's made. There are, there are trees with all sorts of different fruits on them. There's a, a river that runs right through the garden that gives all the, the resources that the, the plants need to grow. And, and he puts Adam and Eve, the first people, into this garden. And he's given them everything. There are natural resources. It's a wonderful place. If you'd been there, it would have been the most beautiful place. And God has been so generous to them and says they can have it all except one thing. He says there's one thing you can't have, one thing that doesn't belong to you. There's one tree and I don't want you to eat the fruit from that. That's not yours. Everything else is yours. I'm so generous. You can have everything, but just not the fruit from this one tree. And if you know the story just three pages into the Bible, what do you find happening? Adam and Eve steal the fruit from that tree. They take and eat what doesn't belong to them. And this first theft, this first act of stealing, has then plummeted all of us into a cycle, a natural inbuilt desire to take what does not belong to us. Stealing comes naturally to each one of us. Now, if you don't believe that, um, then all you have to do is spend some time with children. Um, so on, on Thursday mornings, if you're here at church, I, I oversee um, a, a mums and toddlers group, and we have a whole number of young children, um, preschool, and, and we have singing and games, and there's loads of toys out for them to play with, far more toys than there are children. Um, and there's one point in the, in the morning where we um, get out the bigger toys, and this is the exciting moment for the children because there are bigger toys to play with. And um, just upstairs, we've got kind of two um, cars that a child can sit in. Uh, and we bring them down, and this is the thing they love, especially the police car. Uh, and we bring, we bring them down, and the problem is that the, the children are quite good at maths because they know there are two cars and there are more than two of us. <laughs> and so what you see for the next kind of 15 minutes is you watch as children try to steal off one another. Now, we don't call it that normally, but that's what's going on. So you see that the bigger, ch- the bigger child who jumps into the car and tries to overpower the smaller one and get them out... Or you see the clever child who kind of follows behind the the car all all the way, waiting for the moment to pounce and jump in when there's a space. I generally once uh, watched a child stand in front of the car 
And when the child in the car, trying to wondering what's going on, got out to see who's in the way, the other child ran in and got into the car. <laughs> and we laugh because it's funny, it's comical to watch children stealing. But here's the thing. None of those children have been taught that. No one has taught their child to steal. None of the parents have, none of the people who look after them have ever taught their, ch- their children to steal. In fact, you, you see parents desperately trying to teach their children to, to stick by the rules, or even better, to share. But no one has ever taught their child to steal. It comes naturally to each one of us. And this doesn't just disappear as we get older. This inbuilt desire that, that began with Adam and Eve in the garden, and we see in every child today, doesn't disappear as we get older. No, it remains. Now, if I came up to you after the service and and said to you, uh, are you a thief? You'd probably say no, and it would be quite offensive. But but what if I I asked some different questions? What about these? Have you ever illegally streamed a sports match to watch online? Have you ever spent an hour watching a, a YouTube video during time you've been paid to work for? or taken stuff from the office for your own personal use without permission, or downloaded music that you haven't paid for, or borrowed the neighbor's Wi-Fi, or shared your Netflix password with friends, or or copied your course mate's answer in the university exam, or claimed that expense which, strictly speaking, wasn't used for work, or not provided all the information on your tax return or car insurance, or, or taken someone else's good idea and claimed it as your own. And the list could go on and on and on and on. All these little ways in which we steal. So maybe it doesn't just go away as we get older. Maybe this natural inbuilt desire to take the things that don't belong to us doesn't go away. But but you might say, surely these things aren't that serious. They're They're only little things, aren't they? They're just small. No one gets hurt. We know that God's law is summed up as we love our neighbor as ourselves and love God with all our heart. And actually, the opposite of loving our neighbor is to harm our neighbor. And so when we break this commandment in even small ways, it always results in someone getting harmed. It just may be that we don't see it. Um, There was an article on the BBC News um, page earlier, I think it was last month, the start of March. And TfL have estimated how much money they lose each year from fair dodging. I don't know if anyone saw this. And that's like failing to tap in and out with your Oyster card or counterfeit tickets or the wrong tickets. TfL estimate that 100 million pounds gets lost every year through fair dodging. 100 million. Now that's a significant amount of money. Now when you watch kind of one individual jumping onto the bus and not tapping in, you kind of think, what's going on in, in their heads? Well, it's only £1.50, isn't it? It's just £1.50, it doesn't really matter. TfL is a massive organisation, just £1.50. My, my little theft doesn't really make a difference, does it? But when you take that attitude and put it all across London, and for a whole year, that little £1.50 equals £100 million. And the victims are then the people who TfL can no longer employ, whom they have to make redundant because they don't have the money to pay for them. Or indeed all of us whose fares go up because people have taken There's always a victim. We're deluding ourselves if we think there's not. We just have to think long enough and hard enough and then we'll work out who it is that the little thefts are harming. But even more than failing to love our our neighbour as ourselves, the most serious way in which these small, acceptable acts of stealing, the way in which they offend and deny God's character. 
See, we're, we're seeing every time as we work through these 10 words that these commands reflect the character of our God. So when God says, you shall not murder, it's because he is a God of life. When God says, you shall not commit adultery, it's because he is completely faithful. When God says, you shall not lie, it's because he's a God of truth. So when we steal, in what way are we denying or offending the character of God? Well, that brings us on to to the final point, which is that generosity comes supernaturally. If you have your Bibles, flick forward to Ephesians chapter 4. That second reading, that's page 1176. Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to see how generosity comes supernaturally. See, Paul here is writing a letter to a church, a group of people who've become Christians. And among them are people who used to steal. And let me read verse 28 again. Paul writes, Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. So what's the opposite of stealing? Well, the world might say the opposite of stealing is working, working to earn something at a fair wage. But Paul says, no, the, the Christian opposite to stealing is even further. It's not just working. It's working so that they may have something to share with those in need. The opposite of stealing is sharing. It's generosity. God doesn't simply want us to stop stealing and start working. He wants us to stop stealing, start working so that we might share with those in need. See, when we, we steal, we, we take for ourselves what belongs to someone else. But when we share, we give for others what belongs to ourselves. God wants to make us into those who are willing to share, those who are generous. And that's because he is the God who is supremely generous. Don't you ever thought about how generous God is? Just, just look at the world that he has created It's extraordinary. God has not been stingy in the world that he's given us. He could have created a world in black and white, a world that was bland and small, where there was just one color and one sort of animal and one type of plant and one personality and one star and one sort of food and one sound and just everything bland and limited and the same. But instead, as we look at the world around us, he has created it in full color for us to enjoy. We can wander around Kew Gardens. We can watch planet Earth. We can gaze up at thousands of galaxies. We can listen to orchestras. We can climb Mount Everest and have deep and rich friendships with all sorts of different people. See, God hasn't just given us the bare minimum. He's been extraordinarily generous in his creation. We have a whole universe to explore in full color. Every day we wake up and enjoy the world, we should remember that this reflects the generosity of our God as a creator. But even more than than creation, to see the supreme generosity of God, we have to look to the cross. See, back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve lived in their paradise garden and stole the fruit, they were kicked out of that garden paradise. God says, you can't live with me. I'm the God who is supremely generous and you steal and you can't live with me. They were kicked out of the paradise garden. Humans who are are natural born thieves now have no right to live with a supremely generous God. Our stealing, no matter how small or how big, offends and denies his supremely generous character. 
when I was a, a, a little bit younger, um, one evening when I'd come home from school, I'd walk home with my cousin. I can't remember why, but we, we didn't used to go to my parents' house. We'd walk back home to um, my grandparents' house. Now, my, my granny is wonderfully generous. She's sort of everything you'd imagine, a generous granny. And we'd kind of arrive, and there'd be a, a can of Coke and a, a penguin chocolate bar every single time we went there. Um, and to my shame, as I, I think back now, um, my cousin and I, what we used to do when we arrived, we'd have the, the phantom, we'd have the um, penguin chocolate bar. Um, but when Granny wasn't looking, we knew where she kept the penguins. And so we would take from her, we would take more penguins. I'm sure she knew and she just never said anything because she was that sort of Granny. But we used to take. And there's something shameful when you think back on that, that someone who is so generous to you, you take from them. It's offensive, isn't it? But how much more toward God? A God who has created this wonderful world, and yet we take and take and take from one another rather than enjoy the generous things that he has given us. How offensive. It denies his character. And that's why Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. They can't live with God anymore. To steal is insulting no matter how small, and it's repulsive no matter how small towards God. It is insulting and repulsive, inviting only his anger and his rightful punishment. You know, God could have left us to our stealing. He could have shut us out from paradise and banished us to hell, and it would have been what we deserved. And yet, and yet we get to the cross. We get to the cross. See, instead, God in his supreme generosity, knowing our need, chose to rescue us. He chose to give us his only son. He gave us his son. He said, here you go. Here is my son and sent him to rescue us. I don't think it's any coincidence that as Jesus died on the cross, he hung there between two thieves. Though he had lived a life of perfect generosity, Jesus always gave of himself again and again and again. He died there as a thief next to one of the thieves, dying as one of them, indeed as one of us. And he took all the anger and punishment and hell that we deserve for offending the generosity of God. And as one of the thieves hanging next to Jesus acknowledged his sin and cried out for forgiveness, the supremely generous Jesus offered grace. Do you remember his words? Today you will be with me in paradise. The first human beings thrown out of the paradise garden for stealing. And yet the first person Jesus welcomes to join him back in paradise, a thief, forgiven, And he holds this supreme generosity, this grace out to you and I today. As we confess our sins of stealing and cry out to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness, at the cross we are met with a supremely generous God who offers grace upon grace upon grace. And as we are gripped by that generosity, his amazing grace, that grace changes us to be generous people. It changes us to stop stealing and to start sharing. Receiving his generosity will change us to be people who are generous. Listen to what Paul says again in 2 Corinthians. We had it at the start of our service this evening. He writes, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul wrote that in a section of his letter as he's writing to persuade the church to give generously. Remember how much God has given for you to make you rich. See, as we're gripped by the grace of God, our hands will no longer reach out to grasp hold of what's not ours. 
Instead, they will open up to share, to share and share and share with those who are in need. As I was thinking about it this week, I, I read through a, a little book. I would wave it to you, but I bought it on Kindle, so it's not quite as interesting to wave up a Kindle. But the book I, um, I read was a book called Gospel Patrons, and it tells the story of some very, very generous Christians. They're Christians who probably we've not heard of before, because they're, they're only known for supporting other people who we might have heard of before. So if you went back to the 16th century um, In England, you would not be able to find a Bible in the English language. You wouldn't be able to read one at all. And we may have heard of a man called William Tyndale who gave his life and was eventually executed so that he could translate the Bible into English. But the person you've probably not heard of is a guy called Humphrey Monmouth. He was a, a very wealthy cloth merchant at the time of William Tyndale. And he became a Christian listening to William Tyndale's preaching. And having become a a Christian, Humphrey Monmouth wanted to be a generous person, having been gripped by the generosity of God. And so on hearing Tyndale's vision to to put Bibles in the hand of everyone in the country, Monmouth started giving. He gave and he gave to to Tyndale to to support his work. He um, allowed uh, Tyndale to use his merchant ships to um, get the Bibles all the way around the the world, um, from Europe where he was over into the UK. Monmouth even spent a year in prison for supporting Tyndale in this endeavor, but he gave and he gave and he gave. And the fact that we have Bibles today and we can hear God's word in our own language is because of a very generous man who supported William Tyndale. Supreme generosity. Because he'd been gripped by the generosity of God. And this eighth commandment here challenges us to be the sort of people who are generous who are willing to share, who will take the things that God has given us and willing to open our hands and share it with others. It's a delight to be part of a church family where we see this sort of generosity on a a weekly, daily basis as people give money to support the, the work of church here or who give money to our deacons fund that supports those who are in need. Or even more in London, giving time. Time to visit those who are sick, time to serve on ministry teams, time to just check in and see how someone is, to give and give and give of the resources that God has given to us. This eighth commandment challenges us all the more to live lives that reflect the generosity of our God. See, Christians who have been gripped by the generosity of God, his amazing grace will no longer steal, but will want to share. In just a few moments' time, we're going to sing a song, Amazing Grace, a song that celebrates the generosity of God. But did you know that that song was written by a former thief, John Newton? Many will know the the story. Newton, um, in the 1740s, um, was found himself working aboard the the, uh, slave ship, the Pegasus. It went to West Africa and it exchanged goods for people and sold those people on. Human trafficking, it is evil and abhorrent towards God, stealing people. And John Newton converted and became a Christian. And after he left his former life behind, he returned to England and became a pastor of a church and a hymn writer. And he was known for his generosity towards people. If you have ever read his letters, you'll you'll just feel how big his heart is towards people, how generous he became. But Newton would go on to become a, a mentor for a man named William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce was instrumentally used by God as a Christian MP to, to bring an end to the evil slave trade in this country. Newton died in December 1807, just nine months after Parliament had passed the Slave Trade Act. And on his grave, he had this written. 
John Newton, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long laboured to destroy. That's what happens when God's grace gets into the heart of an individual. It's a grace that forgives and changes the most hardened thief and can turn us around into his useful servant, generous to share in his work. And that's what we long for all of us, to be gripped by the grace of God and turn from wanting to steal to wanting to share and share and give and give because of the generosity of our God. So let's pray that we'll be those sorts of people. Let's pray together now. Father God, we praise you for your supreme generosity towards us. In creation, we see the the glories of this world that you've made. But even more at the cross, we see your generosity toward us, that you would give yourself to rescue us. And we pray that that grace, that amazing grace, would grip our hearts and turn us out from grasping hold of things that are not ours to being generous, willing to give and give and give for the sake of others. Please, with that amazing grace, change us. In Jesus' name, amen.